Welcome to Picture Book Path, a podcast for picture book writers and illustrators with questions about self-publishing. I'm Aijun. And I'm Phil. We're two experienced image makers on a new journey to publish independent picture books. There's no real map and we don't know everything. But we're asking questions and traveling this path to find answers. Come Come explore explore with with us. us. Hey, Phil. Hey, Ajung. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm all right. Um, You know, ready to talk about projects. So how's yours? How's mine? (laughs) Mine is going well. Um, I'm now working on the painting that will introduce my fifth and final character of the book. Um, It's been really fun seeing these characters come to life on the page and just seeing them doing things. And it's just, it's just a, it's a cool feeling. But I have realized that I have this sort of lineup of all the, the characters in this one family. And they're animals, by the way. But, um, oh, they and, are animals. Yes, yes. And, um, and I gave them a lot of thought when I was putting, them, putting this family together. And as I've been going through my spreads, um, I've been printing them out. So I have them folded like in a book and I'm kind of looking at them and I, I've been noticing that um, my main character doesn't exactly look like the character I designed. <laughs> oh, in interesting. But Wait, is it consistent within the book? It's consistent. So I've been looking back and forth at my spreads and trying to make it consistent to what I already did. But it's just funny because it was like I had drawn it and then I had done like or more of a close-up sketch in another page of my sketchbook of the main, only of the main character. The other ones were just sort of just one, one shot of them. But as I was looking at the, like the, the close-up, I was like, this close-up doesn't even look like what I drew. <laughs> like, huh. And I forgot to consult it when I was drawing her. So I just think it's funny that I did that. And then I'm noticing like, you know, a lot of the characters, they don't look exactly like what I drew. <laughs> They're just slightly different. And so it's just, I'm just working now from what I've done, but I like them. It's just, it's funny how there's just little differences that just make a character look different. Um, And it's something I haven't really done, you know, a lot of work with because most of my art is like one-off things, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You move a little, an eye, like a centimeter one direction or you move them slightly together. And it's suddenly like, why doesn't this character look the same? Yes. And isn't it like, do you ever, you know, have trouble figuring out why? You're like, sometimes, yeah. Or like, Um, this character doesn't look cute and I don't know why. It looked cute in this drawing and it just looks like (laughs) demonic in this one or something. (laughs) Do you ever flip your drawings when you're doing them? Uh, No. Wait, why would I flip them? Because Oh, you mean upside down? No, like look at basically like mirror image them. Oh, no. So if you look at them either in a mirror or even take a picture with them on your cell phone and flip the photo mirror image, it just helps you see it in a different way and will show like reveal a ton of the flaws that you're trying to figure out. Oh, that's a good I do that all the time when I'm drawing. I'm constantly like mirror reversing it. Um, I'll have to try that. But um, but definitely like the fact that I have had some issues with consistency. Sure. So I've been doing a lot of like digital editing of that, even though I'm working in watercolor, but mm-hmm. it's just a lot easier to edit things like that. So um, I realized that that when I feel like, oh, I'm plowing forward and then I'm like, oh no, and I have to <laughs> I, like have to fix something. Yeah. Um, but I think like now I'm I'm more attuned to it. So I think it'll be... I'll be more detail oriented in in upcoming spreads. I'll really check them. So yeah, cool. But how's your how's your project going? I haven't touched it. Oh, oh. Yeah, <laughs> since we <laughs> talked last, I have not worked on it one bit. Um, That's okay. And since okay. The listeners are experiencing our creative process in real time, they get <laughs> to see a chunk here where I've just not touched it because I've just had client deadlines. Yeah. Um and one thing after another and so i just haven't had any time to work on it that's okay 
Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you admitted it too, because <laughs> ever since this podcast, I was like, I have to say that I'm on, I'm halfway done or whatever. Like, I can't wait till the day I can say that. So Phil, I was curious though, before you had talked about having a timeline for your project, um, yeah. how does that, and I, I didn't ever actually ask you about that. So mm -hmm. I was just curious about that. And how does it fit in um, when you have so much work that you know, comes up and you can't work on your personal projects. I am behind, <laughs> um, but it's okay. I will figure it out. I, I actually uh, have to redo my timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of want to take a deeper look at it anyway, because I want to figure out marketing and build some of that time into it too. Yeah. You know, because it's not just, oh, I make a book, I put the book out. Yeah. Right. I want to give it ample enough time to get it out to hopefully reviewers and things like that. Uh, oh, yeah. So that's one of the things I want to do over the next two weeks, actually, before our next episode is spend some time looking at when things actually need to be done. Yeah. And then it will be just really plowing straight forward, all wow. steam ahead on my book. So cool. on what's tentatively titled Sheep in the City. Sheep what? In the city. <laughs> Did you okay. think I swore on our podcast? No, I thought you said like sheepnicity. Oh, like sheep ethnicity, but it's a sheep. <laughs> I was <Nope>. like, <laughs> yes, it's a very controversial book. Yes, I was. I Phil, no, but <laughs> what what is your book called? Oh, I'm Do not going to reveal it. I'm not. I'm <sighs> sorry. I Whoa, I wow. have this thing where in certain projects I don't really like to share them while they're in progress Ooh. until like right before the end just because this project has already um been it's I had to work through a lot of fears just to get to this place sure and I don't want any outside pressure or any kind of uh too much sway from the outside world so I just keep it to myself, except for a few people that I share it with. So, so yeah. does that mean that you are going to completely finish it before you start like any sort of marketing plan or are you not doing that? Or are you just going to finish your book and put it out? Like what, what is your plan for that? I think yet? I'm going to finish it. But speaking of marketing, like you were saying, I'm thinking I'm taking pictures as I go of, of the process and have that ready in case um i would like to probably do a kickstarter or something like that mm. to raise money so i think i'm going to finish the entire book because when i did a kickstarter like eight years ago i wasn't finished um on my project which is okay but it, i just felt so much pressure once i raised my money that i mm. i was freaking out so i'd almost rather it be like really either close to done or done and just have things ready to go, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. We have such different working styles. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad thing at all. I just find it really interesting that. Yeah, because like, you're going to share yours, right, on Instagram and stuff? Yeah. Yep. Some people As really enjoy that and get, like, a lot of energy from other people. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't, you know, that can happen for sure. But there's just certain things that I don't want to share. Um because I care too much about them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I can absolutely see that some things not being exciting and feeling like pressure. Right. And if yeah, things yeah. sharing things isn't exciting and feels like pressure, then yeah. there's no reason to do it. And also like, I find that I end up spending a lot of energy checking my Instagram <laughs> Mm. and seeing like how do people respond and stuff and I'd rather put that energy um just towards the creation of what I'm doing sure so that's how I look at it. I like I do like sharing stuff but it has to be something that's like very low pressure and it's just whatever um or it's just done and it like yeah you know I don't have to give more energy to that project so I can just share it look at the feedback and then, and then that's it so yeah and then you can not have to worry about putting pressure on the project but you can put your time and energy into say like the kickstarter that you want to do yeah mm -hmm. yeah well today's guest has done kickstarter 
Yes. Right. So we'll probably learn some stuff from her about that. So our guest today is Christina Buhine Newhard. She is a designer, publisher, and former New Yorker who now lives in Oakland, California. Born in Manila to a Filipina mother and American father, she moved to the U.S. at the age of 10, but always holds the Philippines in her heart. In 2013, she founded Sorry Sorry Storybooks, an independent press that creates picture books in the diverse languages of the Philippines. Sorry Sorry Storybooks' work to strengthen Filipino culture has been highlighted by Adobo Nation, National Geographic Education, Asia Pacific Forum on WBAI, Lonely Planet Philippines, and the Philippine Inquirer. So, yeah, we're really excited to have Christina on. Yeah, it's clearly a, a very cool project that she's doing. Yeah, so she does these bilingual books. Um, she has four in print right now. At the be beginning of the book, she has um, some information about uh, the region of the Philippines where the story is taking place, it's about the geography, a little bit about the culture. She has a bilingual glossary. Um, that highlights the the specific language of that region. Um, and also at the very end of the book, she has some discuss discussion questions. Um, so it's just like, it's interesting format and really wonderful stories and illustrations too. Yeah, it's really cool. So let's get Christina in here. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, hi Jung. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Hello. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so, Christina, could you tell us a little bit about your background um, and how it led you to creating Sorry Sorry Storybooks? And also, what is the meaning of, of that name? I would love to know. Yes. Um, so, Sorry Sorry Storybooks, um, the name came from actually Elisa Sarmiento Co., who she was my co-author on Mellow and also... Um, as a background in marketing and branding. And um, so that was her concept. Um, sorry, sorry, storybooks. Um, sorry, sorry, stores in the Philippines are these little corner stores like bodegas. Huh. They're very mm -hmm. ubiquitous. Yeah, they, they um, I'm gonna say like they're, they're where you get your, like your daily needs. Like sometimes there's some fresh vegetables. It's mostly like single serve packets of soy sauce or laundry detergent or candy, but it's like very utilitarian. They're run by women most of the time. Like a lot of the time it's uh, um, someone's like side business. You can run it out of your house. Um, so it's very like every day and it's um, means variety. So like, sorry, sorry is like diversity, variety. Nice. So. Wow. There are so <laughs> many layers. That's so yeah. fun. And I like the way it sounds too. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in the Philippines. I'm Philippine American. My mom's Filipina. My dad's uh, white American. Um, and my family left when I was 10. Um, so a big part of me is always, you know, wanting to be back there and thinking about like what things might have been if I'd grown up there. Um, it's a I, I just love the Philippines and I, it's important to me. And um, uh, professionally, I'm a graphic designer. Those were two things that went into why I made the press. And maybe the third thing was, I would just say, uh, straight up midlife crisis. <laughs> you know, be, being at my job and feeling very like dissatisfied with being in the same place for a long time and not getting to really um, head my own projects and just sort of thinking about what was, you know, what was important to me and what I should be making or um, sort of a nebulous stew. And then out of that, you know, being, I thought, oh, I don't know, I make kids books, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is like true for a lot of people, like, you know. Yeah. Had you been thinking about making kids books for a while or was this a new desire when it came up? Um, I've always liked kids' books because I think a lot of people love how beautiful and magical they are. Um, but no, it hadn't been something that I thought, oh, that's, as a designer, that's the thing I want to do. Like, I love books and I love, like, complicated typographic layouts, actually. Um, so I love, like, you know, documents that have, like, eight levels of headings and working with that, <laughs> you know. So definitely not, that wasn't the path I was seeking 
Um, but you know, they're they're such a pleasure to work with. And then the other the other piece of it is actually just thinking like deeply about Filipino culture and um, what I could do with the skills I had to contribute something since, you know, I'm not um, someone that can design political systems or, or build different kinds of structures. Like the thing I can do is design. And um, I was thinking about the diversity of languages in the Philippines and how kids books really influence the next generation. So sort of that was the thinking of, you know, how, how can I use what I have as a Philam um, to support Philippine culture and, and its diversity um, in an effective way. Was, do you think that that was part of the midlife crisis of kind of coming back more to um, your cultural roots or is that just something that's just always been on your mind? Um, before the job <laughs> dissatisfaction, um, before, <laughs> before that I had, um, you know, in a really positive way um been going back to the philippines and really enjoying those trips home and um that part of it was not at all like crisis i i'd been going back i, I think i took three trips back as an adult and each trip was was really special and just um very nourishing and very i felt each time like i had a different experience in the philippines i think that maybe at the end of that i also was thinking it was also sort of at the same time i i had that feeling of like i i don't want to keep coming back to the philippines as a tourist like that's mm -hmm. not how i want to be um i had i was thinking about moving there actually also oh, like, wow. and i i still think about that like yeah i could work as a designer in manila um mm -hmm. So I think that was part of the, the big, this like kind of mishy-mushy stew of like how this project came about is how can I um, also find a way to be, be in the Philippines a little differently. And um, yeah, the, I ended up um, traveling there three or four times during this project and spending uh, many months um, each time and um, meeting people that work with language and culture and um, talking to artists and talking to publishers. And so that was also like a very different experience than just, I want to, you know, go visit a beach and, right. and <laughs> eat, at, eat at restaurants, which is, you know, that's not, that's not how I wanted to be there anymore. Oh, that's so interesting. And your, your imprints that you've created, sorry, sorry, storybooks. Um, there are four books out. That's right. And you have written two of them, co-written one. And the fourth one is by another author. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So mm -hmm. with this project, you are finding all these people to collaborate with. You're finding artists in the Philippines and translators because your, your books um, are in two languages. Um, and so it seems like with you trying to get back to tell these stories in the Philippines, you're also finding collaborators um, and the original idea was was not actually for me to write the stories. It's it's sort of what evolved because of um, my own learning curve. Um, but originally, I really wanted to, and and that's the mission for the future books is is actually to have Philippine based authors writing stories to their own culture. So it's funny because as we talked about before, Christina, I was actually born in the Philippines, although I'm half Korean, half Chinese. But I I didn't even realize like how many islands and regions are in the Philippines. Um, and in your books, you they're bilingual books. So they're in English and in the, um, the regional language where the stories are coming from. So could you talk a little bit about, about that, about the Philippines? And yeah, my, so my mom is Tagalog. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, I actually don't speak any Philippine languages at all. <laughs> yeah. I've tried a few times to learn Tagalog. Um, but that's all to say that um, I didn't even know as a Philam the, the really rich language diversity of the Philippines until a few years ago. Um, so, you know, depending on how you count it, I think 187 languages, unique languages wow. are in the Philippines. And when you look at... 180, um, you said? 187. 87, wow. Depends on how it's like some say 181. Um, yeah. But it's, it is one of the world's most language diverse countries. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a nation of um, seven thousand islands and a lot oh of different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like cultural, um, really varied cultural influences um, from like pre-Hispanic Philippines. Even like I learned that Tagalog actually a lot of the words um, are derived from Sanskrit, which oh I didn't really? know. Hmm. Yes, yeah. Um, so there's you know influences from China and South Asia, and there was a lot of trade happening and. Um, many parts of the Philippines were Islamic before the Spanish came. So, oh. um, so there, there's really like a, a rich mixture of culture there. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted the, my press to um, highlight that originality. I think when you have languages that shows originality and um, cultural richness, and I feel like the story of the Philippines is so much like told through this like colonial lens, like people really focus on the things that are Spanish Right. Maybe the American influence, which is very like, that's you know, a kind of erasure and it's not accurate. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted, you know, I, I thought like, you know, again, like how can I with like the little platform I have and my skills, like how can I do something that communicates this and, and highlights the culture in the Philippines and it's, you know, what it really is. Um, and um so yeah, by highlighting that there's even like 187 languages, like even saying that in my Kickstarter, like so many people, including philams like myself, were like, oh wow, I didn't know that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it changes how people see the Philippines when you say, you know, it's one of the world's most language diverse countries. And that's also really important, you know, considering that like languages are are in danger of going extinct worldwide. So, you know, that right. this one country is like such a source of language diversity I think is really important. Yeah. Are are there a lot of people who live in the Philippines who are multilingual then? Absolutely. Yeah. I would think that if they're living in such proximity to each other, the need to communicate, right, would mm-hmm. force them to learn each other's languages. Yeah. I think I would say that's actually the norm in the Philippines. It's fantastic. Yeah. Filipinos are very are, you know, by default multilingual. Yeah. Um, do you, in some of the um, more remote regions, do they also speak English though? Because, because I know a lot of, well, I think a lot of Filipinos speak English, but you tell me. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, English is pretty commonly spoken throughout the Philippines. Not everybody speaks it, but you, you can, people speak it all through the country. And mm-hmm. it's, um, I would say it's also the language of business. It's become that. Um, oh, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, for tourism. Um, and it's also, as I, as I learned, you know, because I, I learned a, a lot of things working on this. That, you know, I had a lot of ignorance before I started the project, but um, there's, uh, Tagalog is not neutral. There's a lot of <laughs> discussion and opinion about um, Tagalog slash Filipino. Um, so in some ways, let, let's say like um, in, in Cebu, in the Visayas, like English can be a little bit more neutral, mm-hmm. even though it's uh, a colonizer's language. It's, huh. it's, there's feelings about Tagalog and, oh. and um, Tagalog dominance. So okay, um, yeah, so it's sort of interesting that, yeah. that that's the case. Oh, and getting, getting back to Phil's question about, um, so approaching... Um, all these different artists and collaborators like what was that experience like it was really fun and it was also um it it took time so you know this project developed over many years and i was really committed to um working with artists from the philippines and as much as i could trying to work with people from the regions that the stories are from so it was a long process of just even reaching out through networks and talking to people I knew, explaining what I was doing. Um, there is a professional network of illustrators, um, Ang Inc., um, Ang Illustrador ng Kabataan, I think is the, the full name. So it's a professional organization um, of illustrators. So I also, you know, looked, looked at their directory. Um, but um, it helps a lot in the Philippines if you can um, have a connection, if you, if, somebody knows the person at least introduce you so that they know that you're you know especially if you're reaching out through the internet 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are four books so far. Were these all released around the same time? The co- mm-hmm. the copyright information that you have in the beginning, it was all fairly recent. That's right. Um, the first three released together. Um, so Melo the Umang Boy, um, Kalipai and the Tiniest Tick Tick, and Amina and the City of Flowers, they all, I, I did the book launches for them as, as a set. Um, Mello ended up, I ended up producing that one a little earlier, but then I just held it until the Kickstarter and Mm. um, reinforcing the idea of Sorry Sorry Storybooks, which is that it's um, geographically balanced. So there's three regions in the Philippines, Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. So kind of inherent in the mission of the press is to, for every set of three books, have one book from each of those regions. So that was why I, I held them. Uh, to release together. And Sandangao is the first in the next batch. Um, that's uh, what I story from Leite, the authors from Tacloban. So that released last year. Mm-hmm. Was it last year? Uh, Pre-COVID. <laughs> I think it was last year. Yes. Anything pre-COVID is yeah. 300 years ago. <laughs> that's right. So. Um, I love that that book. Um, how do you say it again? Sending 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 go, sending go. Yeah, that was like it, it's sort of like a Tom Thumb story, like a little a little boy who's as tall as a hand. Um, I love the the story and the illustrations. And that one, um, that one was written by um, a poet, right? That's right, by uh, Voltaire Oizan, who also writes poetry. Yeah, and he's also a language advocate, so he's he's a really interesting writer. Yeah, I was reading on the um, the thank yous. Um, uh, you had you were at some event and you heard someone else read his poem, right? And that's how you found out about him. That's right. It was yeah. a a fundraiser for hurricane relief that that super typhoon Yolanda had come through Tacloban. Um, so Gina Apostol actually is, is a Orai writer, lives here in the U.S. Um, and she read Voltaire's work. He had a, such a wonderful um, sense of the ridiculous um, in his poem. <laughs> um, it was comic, but also really elegant. So it was thanks to Gina that I, I even heard about Voltaire. And I, I just, you know, I'm sort of my mishmash of like trying to find writers from regions and finding a, a style that could work for a kid's book. I, I, I had the thought like, what? I think, I don't know. I thought he could write a kid's book. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, he can, he did. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. I think it's a really charming story. And like you're saying, yeah. it's, it's kind of familiar. Like um, mm-hmm. it's got that feeling of like, I've heard this story before, but not in this way. Right. And, and that's the cool thing is like, your books are um, coming from these specific areas in the Philippines, but there's they're also universal and um, and and really fun. Some are adventure stories, some are kind of like more like a fairy tale, folk tale. Um, you have some one of them, the Kalipai one, uh, with the the tick tick, um, mm-hmm. like this <laughs> creature. Do you want to describe this creature? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, she is she's a variant of a really creepy, scary monster called the Manananggal. <laughs> um, so the 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 real monster, um, well, she splits in half. She has bat wings. She has a really long tongue. She eats babies and fetuses. She's pretty yeah. freaky. Whoa. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, and there's like a lot of other mythos around the Manananggal. Like, um, she can be killed if you sprinkle salt on the stump. Um, sometimes people think she's a neighbor in disguise. Um, but this version of it, the tick tick, um, makes a sound when you're. It's it's very. Um, <gasps> creepy like it's 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 loud when it's far away and it's soft when it's like about to eat you (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) so when it's you hear a very soft like 
<laughs> you know you're in trouble. Oh my gosh, that's right next to you. That's so creepy. That that's is really so creepy. creepy. That's not in the book, by the way. it's modified for kids yeah right (laughs) in in my version she's a vegetarian oh yeah i love that that's so funny um so how did you approach finding drawing out a story from each of these regions working on the project was sort of a, a mishmash of ideas because it was i was conceptualizing it as a whole set and thinking about certain themes in the Philippines I wanted to highlight and what, you know, what regions that would make sense for and what languages that could pair with. Um, so that's the, the vague answer. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I knew that I wanted, um, let's say like Philippine weaving to be a theme. And there's a few regions that could happen in there's weaving in the North, there's weaving all through Mindanao, you know, thinking about um, Mindanao and this particular tribe in the south, the Yakan, and that there was a very interesting language there, Chabacano, which is actually a Spanish Creole. Just over time, like all these things marinating and like, so for Amina and the City of Flowers, that made sense to have the story of like a young Yakan weaver. And as I did research and um, understood more of the role that um, weaving plays with women um, creating income and that it's a uh, living heritage and it's very female. I thought, you know, altogether that kind of made it a very interesting story. And it being in Zamboanga, which is a very diverse city, I knew I wanted diversity to also be a theme um, in the story, the way that like yeah. certain parts of the Philippines are also little melting pots. Um, the, the first book, Melo, the Umang Boy, um, I created in collaboration with um, my co-author, Alisa Sarmiento Co. Um, and people in Batanes. So that one, that was a very different process. Um, it's a much smaller language community. And um, Elisa went there and interviewed a lot of people. Um, we thought about like the themes that are, that are coming up that were common and um, ended up workshopping the story actually with, with kids like on one of my oh. trips back. Oh, interesting. Um, wow. How I was looked- that? What was that like? It was really cool. <laughs> um, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, like yeah. I'm not Ivatan. It was the first book. Elisa's from Manila. Um, yeah, I, I, I was concerned about, you know, it's like I'm here I am, somebody who's, you know, ideally it would have been an Ivatan writer. Um, it didn't, I wasn't able to do that with my resources and it's just not how it turned out. But um the the kids really um, loved the story, so that yeah. was really fun <laughs> to see that. Like just hear, watch them responding to the story, and um, also they they got every part of it, which was great. Like there's a a scene in the the story. Um, it's about this shy little boy who um, has a journey to the bottom of the ocean and becomes friends with all these sea creatures and overcomes his own shyness. Um, and in the middle of that, there's a series of explosions. And so it's it's not ever stated in the book, but it's it's actually dynamite fishing. Oh, I was wondering um, about that. Yeah, I, I kind of what it might be. thought it, yeah. And they they don't practice that in Batanes, but um, it does happen in some communities, um, or not even in the Philippines, but you know elsewhere too. But the kids, so I asked them like, what what do you think the explosions are? And they all every single one of them said <laughs> dynamite fishing. <laughs> Wow. Oh. And then the follow-up question was, oh, is, is that good or bad? Or And every one of them said, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it, it kills the coral where the fish live. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so yeah. It was very validating to know, like, okay, you know, the story is, is speaking to them and, um, right. like, in, yeah. a, in a meaningful way. Did you get, like, um, other opinions from, for each of your stories about you know, the culture that you're writing about or? Yeah, absolutely. So the Amina and the City of Flowers, um, I worked, the translator, um, Florem uh, Oliveros actually did a lot of research and interviewed people um, from Zamboanga. So there's a lot of different types of characters in the story. So, you know, as part of the research was, was interviewing people from the different groups mentioned. Um, wow. I also talked to, um, I was staying in Davao for a couple of months, which is another part of Mindanao. And um, 
I interviewed a, a Taosug chef and her auntie, who's a Sama dancer. Um, so a what dancer? Uh, sorry. Sama. She's her, her ethno-linguistic group is Sama. Okay. There's so a, the a, woman with the golden fingertips. That's oh, right. right. Yes. For some groups in the South, um, you know, she's right, right next to Indonesia. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you can see that overlap and influence. Um, some of the dances and foods feel a little similar. Mm-hmm. Kalipai is the one that kind of stands out as, um, I was most anxious about that because it has this like really creepy monster in it and wasn't sure how that was going to land. Actually, yeah. so this, this published version is the second version. The, the first one oh. I, I pulled <laughs> <laughs> because it was, um, it, it, I got negative response from some parents, not all parents. But, oh, um, it was too scary. It was, I think it wasn't even scary so much as the, the Philan parents I showed it to just felt it was not appropriate for kids. Okay. So that was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I would say it was also, I think, you know, in my own learning about what works for kids, um, I think that, you know, the critique was, was right that they, when I look back on it, um, that first version was, was not really the best it could be for kids of that age. Um, it was a little bit confusing. Um, in that first version, the character Gamai, who's a tic-tic, she tries to actually eat her friend's baby brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, maybe with a little more, you know, knowledge and experience and that <laughs> <laughs> to start yeah. um so, you know it's but feedback can be really valuable this is why critique's important mm-hmm. right that's right exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, so but was this like uh just a written version or that that got pulled or was it actually like in the process and then you pulled it or it was actually already illustrated oh, oh wow Okay. Yeah. And so it had to be illust- re-illustrated then? It's, yep, it did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I learn as I go. Um, yeah. Picture books are a weird thing because the audience is children, but they're not the ones buying it. The parents are buying it. So you have to kind of please both of those segments. And then to critique it or go through, you have to also take it to people who kind of understand how picture book works because not even a lot of writers, right, can critique a picture book because they don't have that um, baked in kind of image making stuff. So it, it's a real push and pull in finding people who you can trust to get feedback from. A hundred percent, yeah. Did you consider ever going traditional with these books, like with traditional publishing, or did you decide fairly early that you wanted to handle everything yourself? I decided early to, to do it myself. Um, I, I did, you know, just think about what that would look like, but I think I thought like I would never get through the pitch process with my concept, you know? Right. And also what I was thinking of doing, you know, kind of coming from like a design perspective, actually, like I had this concept for the series, you know, that's not how you, would pitch a publisher, you would come as a, a writer or an illustrator with one, right. one book. Um, and I had a very strong attachment to how I wanted this book to support Filipino culture. And I didn't see any publishers that would share my values that way. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of inherently like my, my press, it's like, it's kind of a hard sell, you know, <laughs> um, even for Philippine publishers, um, it's tough to create books that are very regionally specific like that because that's not what the audience, you know, the mass market's asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, I think, great value. And I think yeah. with the right spin, I, you know, people do also want these books. So, but it's, I think that's tough to ask a, a publisher to take that risk. Um, They're putting tens of thousands of dollars into every one of their books. Yeah. And so they, yeah. they a lot of times they play it a little almost too safe because unless they're convinced that there's going to be a, a big market there they don't take those chances yes and then like that's i think that shows like how important indie publishers and presses and, and self-published authors can be like you know if you have any kind of idea that 
you know, probably wouldn't sell as well as, you know, that's then there's a real value to having those books out in the world. Um, you have uh, previous experience as a graphic designer that right. you brought into this process. So that probably gave you some confidence to be able to tackle this thing. But were there things that you learned along the way where you're like, oh, I hadn't expected that or um, new hurdles that you realized in the process that you were going to have to deal with? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Um, I'd say my graphic design experience was, you know, from like a production standpoint, gave me a lot of confidence and it's not, not for nothing. I can create all my own marketing materials. I can create um, my own logo and all these things that would be quite expensive um, for somebody else who's starting a press. But I was completely um, had no knowledge at all <laughs> of yeah. any of the other parts of it. Um, and I'm, I'm still learning things. Um, even just things, the, the, the really mundane stuff like sales and figuring out the, the, the publishing ecosystem. Um, just even, you know, understanding like how the, what a distributor is. Like I had no, I had no knowledge of that. Um, what's an ISBN number, you know, <laughs> um, where do you even find that, you know, yeah. um, very basic things. Yeah. Well, one example of that, we were looking at your books, um, was that you have behind the uh, front cover of your books, you also have the um, publishers cataloging and publication data, mm -hmm. um, which is something that even a lot of indie books don't have in their books. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And like, and what it is for people who don't yeah. know. Yeah, sure. So um, the, what, what I understood is that um, if you want your book to be found in libraries um, more easily, you need either um, CIP, the cataloging and publication, or, you know, if you can't get that as an independent publisher, um, there's some hurdles there. It was important to me to, have the book be findable. So as an independent publisher, I got the, the PCIP with the publishers cataloging and publication. Um, you would pay a company to create that information for you. Um, in my case, I worked with a Donahue group. I'm trying to remember the cost. I want to say it was like around $120, I think to have that done. Um, I believe, and I'm, I'm not sure this is accurate. I, I think that you would not pay if you were a uh, traditional publisher getting a CIP. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, cost of doing independent publishing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and before you get either a CIP or a PCIP, you need to get a PCN um, from Library of Congress. So that's also a separate um, process to contact them request that. Um, they do give that out to independent publishers as well. Okay. Um, so, you know, just a little more technical work. Um, right, in the weeds. So the PCIP, that, that data, where does that information go to make that book findable? It's metadata that I believe it does reside with the Library of Congress. I'm not really sure. Um, but I know that within the library system, it makes the book more findable. And, um, you know, I, it was for the mission of what I'm doing, which is not just like trying to create my own book, but really wanted to make sure Filipino culture becomes available and that these diverse books are available to um, a large group of readers. Getting it into libraries is important. So that, that's why I thought it's worth investing the time and money to get this um, on my books. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a requirement if you're an independent publisher to have this on your books but it was important to me. Um, so have you been able to place your books in libraries and stores and things like that? Not very well, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. My distributor is actually a bookstore, Ar Archipelago Books. Um, and my understanding is that if you're not um, with Ingram and before Baker and Taylor, but you know, that's changed. It's, it's mainly Ingram now. If you're not with one of those two distributors, either through them directly or through like a smaller distributor that's working with them, it's very tough to get picked up by, especially by libraries. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the bookstore networks as well. So with bookstores, I've had a little more success. Um, a few of them have carried my books, um, but you know, you, you, it's, it's legwork, like you're reaching out to them yourself, um, staying in touch with them for invoicing and, um, you know, distributor would do all that work for you yeah, and right. be able to like tap a lot more bookstores. Um, I've reached out to stores mainly because I wanted to have an event there. So mm -hmm. that's also an incentive if you are small and, you know, you want to reach out to your neighborhood independent bookstore. Um, you know, it's, it's about seeing that you're going to be able to sell books. So if you're having an event there with them, you know, at least you'd probably sell however many, you know, I don't know, 20 books or whatever that event might sell. Like events work pretty well for selling books. But you also have an Etsy site. And is, so is that your main way of, of selling books just through yourself? It was a kind of a workaround. It's, it is how I sell books online right now, um, coming directly to me. Um, my books are also sold on Archipelago's, uh, Archipelago Bookstore's website. Um, but for Etsy, yeah, I, um, it was a way to have an online presence that I could send people to. But ideally, like, the sales would rest on my website, which... I just haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. You know, it's one of those things like <laughs> as an indie person, everything falls on you, yeah. right? It, you yes. know, it's like, it's the getting into bookstores and it's the website design and maintenance and oftentimes distribution. So, so just being realistic about the time that you have and where you're going to put your time. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, well, and you also found success on Kickstarter too, though. Yes. Um, Kickstarter was uh, a way to, you know, just most basically raise money to fund the printing. Like each book costs about six to $7,000 to produce um, printing wise. Um, I did two runs. So I did a run in the Philippines. So there's, um, a set of books there um, with a different cover. And then I did another run, which was the kind of U S international version um, wow. printed in Singapore. Um, so those two together, you know, it adds up to about six, six to 7,000 per book. Um, so I had actually been putting in my own money and shouldered the cost of the illustrator, the cost of my going there, everything and the printing of the first book mellow. Wow. And I just, you know, I, I did not have $14,000 <laughs> for the next two. Um, but I also, you know, I worked on this project for several years and I had always thought of Kickstarter as being a way to not just raise money, but a way to activate community, um, to create pre-orders, to um, advertise. It's, it's free advertising, yeah. basically. Right. Um, I have heard it given people who have, let's say have that money for their project that it's still a great way to draw attention to hold the Kickstarter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you mm -hmm. have any suggestions for running a successful Kickstarter? And um, how much did you raise Christina? Cause it was, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it ended up being $18,000. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I would Congratulations. never. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, the the goal was fourteen thousand, and so I, I pushed past past that and raised eighteen total. Um, it feels like a dream. It was like three years ago, I think, um, but that happened and <laughs> happened successfully. But, um, yeah, there's I I spent hella time like preparing for it. Um, yeah. We were saying I Jung, I was talking about it before how it's. Um, you are really earn that money. <laughs> a friend of mine had said, you know, it sounds like great. I'll just, you know, raise whatever amount on Kickstarter. But um, a friend of mine had, who I had, I talked to a lot of people also getting different kinds of advice. I talked to a friend who does fundraising. Um, I talked to, you know, other creatives, um, other people who had done Kickstarters and yeah, just, just understanding like it's, it's going to be a lot of work to get to that money. <laughs> um, You're paying for it. <laughs> you are like, um, and it's, it's possible, right? Like I, it's maybe more than I would, um, could easily earn on my own and save. But um, yeah, just knowing that it's like a lot of labor. I, I, I thought about it like um, laying kindling. Um, so you, you put all the pieces in 
place that you think will make for a successful Kickstarter over time so that when you actually launch it, you're hoping it's going to like catch fire. Yeah. Um, you know, certain things like I knew having an event really helps. Um, so you have people like on the day it's launching, um, you have photos from that event, you have a Facebook event page for that event that's not actually the Kickstarter. So there's, you see how it's like you do things like that to not just email your friends and say, hey, I'm doing the Kickstarter now, please donate. But you have other things that are creating attention around it. Um, and Oh, and in, in this event, the people also donated during the event? Is that mm-hmm. how it worked? I, I asked people to. So I had a computer okay. there. There was a reading of the books in progress. There was food and people hanging out. Um, oh, I played, cool. played the Kickstarter video. Um, yeah, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, Meredith Toulousen, had done a Kickstarter for a fashion uh, knitting collective called Ricefield Collective a few years before that. So I kind of looked at what she did as a model. And you don't have to do these things, right? But I did the just the general research for recommendations, like you should have a video. Um, you don't have to have a video with your Kickstarter, but you know, people who have videos tend to be more successful. The video should not be long, you know, keep it under two minutes max, hopefully more like a minute. Um, I made sure to create my own URL. So I had like tiny URL, sorry, kick. So, you know, little things like that. So it's easier Mm -hmm. to share. Really important thing is telling your your network that please donate within 24 hours. Um, You want to create a momentum that you, if you can, you know, try to catch the attention of Kickstarter staff. Like if your project is, is creating this uh, upward incline, uh, you know, I mean, not everyone can do that, but that's what you should try for if you can, because um, my project got picked by Kickstarter as a project we love. So that ended up getting featured on a thumbnail. That also helps, you know, other people yeah. who are not my network saw it. But yeah, mainly I, I, um, I thought about every person I could possibly reach out to <laughs> about this. I made sure to talk about the Kickstarter, you know, well before I actually launched it so that everyone I reached out to, you know, was not the first, second or third time they heard about my project. <laughs> so like those things that create kindling so mm-hmm. that it, it can, yeah. you know, do well. Um, the other thing that was like really useful, which is like a fundraising thing. And again, this is not, I don't know, this is my wheelhouse, you know, um, I talked to a friend, Michael Federer, who does um, fundraising, and he said, you try to identify before you have a fundraiser, like try not to raise more than you can actually account for. It's, which is like scary for me because I, I hate asking people for money. <laughs> but um, you, you try to calculate, you know, try to set yourself up to succeed by being able to say, I know that this money is going to come in based on who I've asked and who I know, you know, what I'm estimating in my network. Um, oh, so, oh, you estimate it based on the people, you know, not how much you need is what you're saying or. In theories, kind of? I actually, $14,000 was actually more than I, I thought I had. So yeah. I told, didn't exactly listen to it as advice, yeah. but, but it, I did try to account for some of it. So the, um, the angel donors. So I had like a $1,000 level for angel donors and people who contributed at that level. I put their name in the books and then donated like 200 co- 250 copies to um, libraries in the Philippines. Awesome. <laughs> um, so that was an ask. I had to reach out to those people individually. Um, oh, okay. No, actually, sorry, like three people, actually three of the angel donors surprised me. They just donated. Uh-huh. But I did reach out to two people with, with that kind of an ask, um, which is very uncomfortable, <laughs> sure, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but I think, cause I'm not in that world. Um, people who do fundraising, asking somebody for a thousand dollars for a project is not actually very big. Right. Um, yeah. It's big for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's so cool that you, you had the bravery to ask. I think that's really important that people, Keep that in mind is like, if you really want something, you, you have to ask for it. So, yeah. One thing that Michael told me, which I try to wrap my head around is he said um, $7,000 is a very, is generally like considered a very reachable goal for most people. Hmm. And I would maybe say maybe not for all people, right? If yeah. you're, 
you're a college student or you don't have like um, a network of people that are have money to spare, um, you know, maybe it's not for everybody, but, but that figure, you know, $7,000 is kind of considered like you could reach that goal. Um, so that it was interesting information and it made me feel a little bit more comfortable with like, you know, if, if I do this work and I understand like why people give and I do all the right things, um, made me feel a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and you made some beautiful books, so yeah, I don't think you gorgeous. should feel bad about anything. <laughs> Christina, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that you took a PR course last year. Um, I was wondering if you could define what PR is and how has that helped you with your independent press? Sure. Um, PR is public relations and it's a strategy for how you get your story out into the world um, with media. So, you know, in the way that we're creating stories and the book is the medium, how journalists write about your press or your work is, is the medium of like the story of you, like the story of what you're doing, the story of why you're making these books. Um, and I don't think I was thinking about it or understood how to present that. You know, you have to, you have to pitch journalists um, with your press and your work and ask if they'd like to write about you. Yeah, I, this, I took this PR training course with uh, Papa Lowdown Agency. Um, it's an agency here in the Bay, uh, Filipina run um, by um, Paloma Concordia. And um, I did a training course and just you know, the basics of how to create a pitch, how to track it, being organized, like what what you think about with um, other things happening in the world. Um, if it's Philippine American History Month, if it's um, if there's an International Children's Book Day, if there's something around Philippine languages, like just thinking about things through a journalist lens, like what would they like to write about, and then how do you um, pitch your work in a way that makes sense for what's in the current moment? Um, right. So you're tying it to something larger that might even be happening to make it more relevant. Yes. Huh. Cool. It totally makes sense. And also it was like such a wonderful thing that this uh, course was available. It's called PR for the people. So, I mean, hiring a PR agency is quite expensive. So um, yeah. it was really valuable to be able to take a course and like learn from someone who does that full time. You've now done four books. You've created an imprint. You know so much more now, I'm sure, than when you started. For people who are starting now, what is one piece of advice or one thing that you learned that you wish you would have known at the beginning? It's hard to know when you're starting out. It's such a big ecosystem publishing and there's so many little puzzle pieces that fit together. Um, and that's what works for traditional publishers. I wish I had known as an independent, as an indie publisher that um, some of the things that sound like you should reach for maybe aren't even going to make sense. Um, oh, interesting. So like, yeah, like the idea of like, I need to be someone who can get my books into Barnes and Noble, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. and then understanding, you know, the, the amount of sales that you need to drive to that particular Barnes and Noble for them to keep your book around is just not realistic. So the volume of copies being sold, like, was not, would never have been an achievable goal for a small publisher like me. So, you know, just knowing things like little things like that, like, um, would have helped me, you know, adjust my sites earlier. And, and, you know, I don't have distribution with Ingram and say, I don't have it yet, you know, <laughs> um, but maybe to know like that can be okay. Um, that you can still create a book and sell it through some stores and have small sales and, and still be connecting with an audience, still be having book events, um, still creating revenue, um, still be a publisher. You know, and you don't have to fit into that mold, that little box that, um, you know, gets the, that the, um, we might think of as like, that's what publishing is. Yeah. Um, it'd be great. I mean, I'd love to have distribution with Ingram and be carried in Barnes and Noble, of course, you know, but yeah. um, it's also okay to not have that. Christina, could you describe one moment that made self-publishing all worth it to you? Oh gosh, there's a few of them, but I, I think um, 
really seeing like kids with the books and hearing feedback from kids and parents. And so like one, one thing I, one message I got from a parent who read Amina uh, in the City of Flowers, which is a Mindanao story. Um, and she said something like, until I read Amina, you know, I, I don't think I even wanted to visit Mindanao. Um, that region of the Philippines has like this outsized reputation for like violence and it's very stereotyped that way. It's not really fair. Um, a lot of Filipinos have a, like a attitude of not wanting to go there. So that was really moving that like this parent said, after I read your book, you know, I felt like I wanted to go visit Zamboanga, you know, it changed her. Um, and then um, I posted on my Facebook and Instagram, like around Halloween, but a couple of times, um, there's been two little girls that dressed up as characters from Kalipai. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, cool. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. And one of them dressed up as the Tick Tick. <laughs> I was like, fantastic. Did she have the long tongue? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. And like her face was so happy. Like she was so squinty. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh that's just the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty cool. <laughs> so what's next for you oh keeping on doing what i'm doing um it's interesting with covid like actually my book sales are up <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. yeah and I've, I've been getting requests for readings um oh um yeah so there's there's a couple things in the works um i need to work on the next book to come out which has been a long time coming is going to be a maranel story it's already written by uh, Hannah Lisman. Um, um, so that's, that would be the next thing to release next year. Um, and I'm, I don't want to say too much, but I'm collaborating with a school on um, a musical version of one of the books. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and where can people find you if they're looking for you online? So the website is um, sorrysorrystorybooks.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, a little bit on Twitter, not very much. Um, those links are all a little bit different, but if you just like Google, sorry, sorry, storybooks, Facebook or Instagram, I think it's sorry, sorry, storybooks on Instagram and sorry, sorry, dot storybooks on Facebook and sorry, sorry, stories on Twitter, but. And also your Etsy. Right. Oh yes. Right. The most important. <laughs> if you want to purchase copies of the book, then it's um, actually newharddesign dot etsy dot com excellent and we'll include links to all of those in the story notes too thank or you. the episode notes well christina thank you so much for joining us this was yeah, fantastic thank you. it was really fun talking to you phil and i jung yeah thank good luck on all your me. projects yeah good luck yeah, thank you thanks, thanks. so i jung that that was really interesting like we covered so many things when we were talking yes. to christina yeah, it was it was super interesting. Um, yeah, what stood out to you? Oh, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm just kind of a buzz. There are so yeah, many me things. Too. I thought that the way that she was talking about the Kickstarter stuff was really interesting. About how to almost, in a way, like do a release party for the Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like treating it as an entire event, yeah. all on its own. And trying to build that buzz even before the Kickstarter starts. Yeah. So you can like go right out of the gate pretty strong. Yeah, that's really and, smart of her to do that. I'm going to think about that technique. Yeah. And I'm also going to look more into the publisher's cataloging and publication. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the CIP and try and, um, I don't know, detangle that web. How about you? What are you kind of taking away from this? I mean, there was so much. I was just really interested in how she created these um, storybooks about culture and from the different regions of the Philippines and yeah. um, the aims of, of creating books like that is, and the response. I mean, the books themselves I really love are they're beautiful. really, yeah, they're beautiful. The stories are, are really, um, really interesting and fun. Um, some of them have, you know, injections of culture that are just really fascinating. Um, so I just really enjoyed just hearing about about that aspect. So the book project I'm working on now, it's not um, really highlighting my own culture, which is 
half Chinese, half Korean. Um, but there are sort of a few little details I've included that are have aspects of some of the cultures or just different cultures. But um, because I didn't grow up seeing a lot of books with Asian people in them, storybooks. Um, and even nowadays, like a lot of the ones that I see that are picture books are, you know, maybe they're based on Chinese New Year or something historical or cultural. I don't really see a lot that are just like everyday kind of stories. Um, mm. But I did actually recently pull out. So when I took this online children's illustration class with Joy Chu in 2013, um, our one of our assignments was to take a example book and um, using that as an example, create our own text and our own illustrations. And I made one. Right now, it's just called Toronto Trip. I, I need to rename it, but it's it's basically about my family uh, when I was a kid. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and we would go to Toronto um, quite a bit when I was younger, um, like at least two or three times a year. And when I asked my parents about it, they said that it was because they had a lot of Asian food, because <laughs> at the time, <laughs> there wasn't as much in Rochester. Um, sure. And then now there is more. But um, but so we went there all the time and we would check in at this one hotel and it's just a book about my experiences. And we would watch, um, we'd go watch movies in Chinatown and I cannot speak Korean or Chinese, but they would have English subtitles. So we'd watch these like Jackie Chan movies with the subtitles and we'd eat candy. And it was just like, it was, it was just really fun. So I have this dummy that I made and I've actually, I pulled it out recently. I was looking at it and thinking maybe I'll just you know, make this into an actual book. If, yeah, thinking about like what kind of cultural story would I tell as someone who feels sort of like not as engaged in my own Asian heritage. Oh, um, but but I think that like Christina is, is so interesting because she did grow up in the Philippines, um, but she didn't speak Tagalog, the main Filipino lang language. And But she still went ahead and created these books that connect her with different aspects of Filipino culture. So I just think that's that's really cool and brave to go into it, you know, not knowing every, you know, absolutely everything. I mean, of course no one could. Yeah, so it just makes me think about, you know, what I might want to do in the future. Cool. But yeah, but I'd have to think about what kind of story I would want to tell. Thanks for hanging out with me again this afternoon. Junk. Yeah, thank you, Phil. And um, for the listeners, as always, um, email us at picturebookpath at gmail.com. You know, we're open to suggestions on topics or guests or whatever. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thank everybody. you. Bye. Picture Book Path is hosted by I Jung Kim and Philip Hilliker. We can be reached at picturebookpath at gmail.com. Our music is by scottholmesmusic.com.